everyone out there is talking about stocks. Whether it's to pick your own stocks or pick your own ETFs, broadly diversify, whatever, it's always this element of stocks. And probably so because, you know, they do provide the best returns over an extended period of time, right? Based on history, uh, I'm not saying that it will continue to be this way, but based on history, they have provided very good returns over an extended period of time. But what about bonds, you know? Bonds seem like this sidekick, you know, like Batman and Robin Hood. And Robin Hood somehow comes out, you know, because Batman must have a sidekick like that. Right, but actually, bonds is very interesting in itself. They have a very different way of making money. How do you pick your own bond fund? How do bonds actually make money? Can you actually make money in the current bond environment? You know, where there's a lot of negative yield. So that's what we're going to talk about today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Welcome to another Chills with TFC session and in this series, we hope to bring on interesting, relevant people to help us learn better from various perspectives. Life is not always about learning from people that you already agree with. Perspectives shape around a thinker. So in our pursuit of the life we love or managing our finances well, our guest for today is someone that's leading the charge in the local financial social enterprise space. She has a lot more up her sleeves. It is not all about holistic financial planning, you know, broadly diversifying, all the kind of rinse and repeat financial advice we are going to go into her first love today, bonds. She was in the heat of it all during the 2008 mortgage bond meltdown, right? Dawning with her all these experiences and battle scars from the market. Let's welcome CEO of Money Owl, Chunting. Hi everyone. Hi Reggie. Thanks for having me on the show. You know, when, when we're talking about investing, a lot of people will look at stocks, mm. right? But today we, we want to spend a lot more time to talk about bonds, right? Because it's the... I had a not so sexy one, lah, right? For, for like a better way to put it. <laughs> you know? uh, bonds, are, bonds are my first love, actually. Uh, yes, yeah, because yes. of where I came yes. from. And that's yeah. why we are here with you. Help us understand what are bonds. Mm. Is it the same as like loans, like what we understand, you know, as retail individuals? So bonds and loans are similar in that they are both borrowings. So meaning that someone lends someone else or an entity a sum of money for a time and then expects to get it back with a certain compensation. But there are some important structural differences, I would say. And I think I would like to divide that into like four differences. First is who borrows. Second is who lends in a bond versus a loan. And third is how you repay the structure of payment. And fourth is the concept of price. So firstly, who borrows? When it comes to loans, generally speaking, it's individuals. You know, like we borrow buy a house or we borrow a credit yeah. card, etc. Uh, not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and corporates, right? Companies. Of course, governments do sometimes borrow from, say, World Bank or whatever, but let, let's exclude them for now. So, loans, individuals, corporates. Bonds, governments, and corporates. Mm. Then, who lends? Who is the lender, right? Who's on the other side? When it's loans, it tends to be from banks. Right? And, uh, but when it comes to bonds... The lender is actually capital markets, right? the capital market participants, or you call them investors. Now, this is important because the source of funds is different. When you issue to the capital market, the market determines 
whether it wants to lend to you, how much it wants to lend to you, and then the price at which it wants to lend mm. to you. And it's a collective assessment of pricing your risk. So in a sense, you can say it's a market discovery of your creditworthiness. But when you borrow from a bank, yes, the bank will also make the assessment, but the bank has to use its own balance sheet to support it. Now, what do I mean? Because in the government uh, regulations to promote the stability of bank, you cannot lend out all your, your money. Yes, your money yes. right? You need to set aside some capital in order to support potential losses mm. uh, from your book. So what this means is that when you have to set aside capital that cannot be used, it actually becomes costly for bank shareholders. Right? Mm. So there is then that difference. So... Uh, this is really about who lends. Right? So loans are from banks. And I would say that generally speaking, if you're very confident of your position in the market and you have a, a sound business, if you issue a bond, that market discovery process should reward you with slightly uh, low, rates. lower rates. That, that's what uh, oh. I believe. So. But there is, uh, because of regulations of bank capital and all that, uh, in Europe, corporates tend to borrow more from banks. And say in US, they tend to issue bonds rather than borrow from banks. So there are structural differences here. Yeah. So who borrows and who lends, those are the differences. Now, how you repay is also different from how we understand it. And this is quite important because when you have a loan, it tends to be a term loan for time and as individuals we are familiar with amortizing loans right you pay some principal and some interest the um, periodic payments are level so so like your monthly mortgage is the same amount but the proportion that goes to its principal and proportion that goes to its interest is different but over time then it falls to uh, zero right you have fully repaid now bonds are not like that so bonds well, what you lend at the beginning, you repay at the end, and in between you pay coupon. Right? Usually semi-annually, meaning uh, every six months, but sometimes annually. So this is the payment structure that is quite different, and it does affect the way that it's priced because it depends on when you're buying the bond. Right? You have a different risk because your risk is at the back. So the interesting thing, though, is that you can turn a loan into a security like a bond through a process called securitization. And this is, again, what happens uh, in mortgage-backed securities. So you take basically, all, let's say, 100 mortgages and then you package into a bond. And mm-hmm. then you have a certain cash flow and, and all that that you pass on. So, but anyway, generally speaking, uh, nowadays we tend to be a little bit less you know, into this structural thing. So a bond has that coupon and then a big principle at the end, generally speaking, what vanilla bonds. Now, finally, this concept of price. How do you price a loan? When you think about a price of a loan, actually, most of the time, you're like, huh, what are you talking about? You're talking about interest rate, right? So you say mortgage rate is what? Or you say your company, you're borrowing, you know, you had to borrow 10% or 3% or what? So this is what it is. It's basically an interest rate. But when it comes to bonds, the concept is basically yield. Right? Yield uh, and the inverse of yield is uh, price. But... Yield, um, let me just quickly explain, it's not really the same as an in- interest rate or the coupon that you get, which I, which I described just now. So let's just say that you bought a bond and it pays once a year coupon and it's a 1.2% coupon. And the bond is issued at $100 par value and at the end of one year, you get by $100, right? So in this case, your coupon is 1.2% and your yield is also 1.2%. Okay. okay. Yes. But let's say you bought the bond not at $100, but you bought at $120. Mm. So you bought higher than par, which you call premium. 
So you bought $120. At the end of one year, you have gotten $1.20 uh, $1 and then $100. Mm. Right? So then what is your uh, yield? Lost, right? Right. Yeah, it's, actually, it's actually lower, right? So it's actually more than 1%, mm. right? because you actually paid more for it. Yeah. So, this is, so what this means is that you can have two bonds of the same maturity that can have a different coupon, but yet the same yield. And this is then in because of the price. So generally speaking for bonds, when yields go up, the price of the bond has fallen right? mm. because it's not equivalent to the coupon. And this is where the capital markets come in because you price according to yield and uh, how the, some of these prices are affected is in the buying price of the bond. So a company comes out and says, I'm going to issue this amount of bonds. The market determines where you strike final yield. So if there's a lot of demand, then you tend to be able to issue at a discount. So uh, that's good. That means that markets still have that confidence, confidence in, the in the company. So how, how does that discount then reflect on the price? Oh, so let's say you, you have a par value of, say, 100. So that is the issue price? Is uh, no, that, that is just the value of the bond. It okay. tends to be, they say, 100 or something. So it's issued at 98.7 cents, for example. Mm. Right? But because at the end, you get back 100. Usually mm, that's how mm, it is. Mm. So then you do the calculations in between okay. uh, to get the discount rate that will bring all the cash flows to that price of 98.7. And then you know that how that, uh, what is that yield. So if that was a 3.5% bond, it means 3.5% coupon. But because it's issued at 98.7, the yield is higher than 3.5%. Mm, because mm. at the end of the term, you actually make that hundred, the hundred, right? Which is right. about another one point three percent more. That's right. right? Yeah. Uh, one point three times more, not one point three. Yeah, you have to sort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, do the discounting, okay. yes, the different yes, previous. Yes. Yeah. Okay, okay. But that's how negative yields come about. Yeah. Right. How, how do people make money in a negative <laughs> yield environment? Yeah, we can talk about that a little yeah. bit more. But how how do you even sort of operationalize a negative yielding bond, right? So. What happens is that it's not that they pay you money for lending them money, like the German government now is having negative yielding bonds. What they do is that they issue zero coupon bonds. So zero coupon bonds, generally speaking, means that uh, they should be issued at a discount. So the 98.7 at the end is 100, and that difference, actually, then you make your calculations, implies a certain yield. In between, you don't get coupons. So this is a zero coupon bond. Mm. So... But in this case, when a negative building bond, instead of issuing at a discount and then you get back par, they issue above par and then you get back 100. Mm. Yeah. So that's how the negative view comes about. Yes. Yeah. So, okay. So essentially, they're not going to give you any money for holding on to the bond through this process because yeah. that's why it's called zero coupon. Yeah. Right? And then for something that is worth 100 at the end of the time period, they sell you at like 110, 120, something like that. Right? Uh, yes, but, that's right. But isn't that... a uh, um, there is a market mechanism behind this, right? How is that one ten or one twenty price? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So there's a primary market for bonds and a secondary market for bonds. So for the primary market is really when the in this case the government will issues and then they will announce auctions and then all the dealers will come and they will buy the bonds <laughs> and because there's a lot of demand they will bid up the bonds. So this means that for some reason the uh, the confidence, perhaps be it in the banking system or be it in the economy, is so low. Everyone wants to put their money into a very, very safe instruments to the extent that they are willing to lend the German government money and pay to, for the privilege of lending. 
<laughs> yeah, so, so that's uh, how negative feeling was come about. Uh, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. It's an interesting phenomenon. It's an uh, interesting phenomenon, phenomenon right? So, right yeah. so essentially, it means that the guys, they don't want to put their money elsewhere. They're willing mm. to like, you know, fight for giving the money to the government. Yeah, right? That's, that's why the bond get bits up. Yeah. And at the end of the time period, they lose. And then in between... How do, how do the people that participate in between make money yeah. then? Also, there's a secondary market where people just really buy and sell bonds. Mm. So this is uh, usually done through institutions. And so it's, it's quite interesting because we can think about why and how do institutions use bonds and how do they profit from bonds or how do they um, think about bonds. Mm. Mm. But like what you rightfully point out, it sounds like this only is an institutional game. Mm. Like only the institutions get access to it. Uh, yes and no, but I would say that one thing that is very true is that uh, it is largely about institutions. So then how, how do we retail guys participate in the bond space? Mm. So for us, there are two ways let's say practically speaking yeah yeah, yeah. a realistic one yeah like, realistic can, one we actually like, can do it one. Uh, can do it yeah, yeah, yeah. Without, yeah. without like having to be a bank yeah one is to you can buy some that are listed right but most bonds are actually in big denominations of like 250,000 uh, Singapore dollars for okay. example or so although they are thousand. listed that I can buy directly but the minimal ticket is $250,000 yes that's right oh, yeah, okay. it tends yeah, to so be uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay, unless you're yeah. an credit investor or you have yes, 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 uh, yes. there is this uh, like iFast has this service called Bond Express but for accredited investors only mm. where they can buy an odd lot la. so mm. accredited investors have you know a certain net worth or certain income or that for retail bonds, there have been as well, and some of them are also listed, but there are not many. Right? And uh, the higher quality ones would be the Thermasic bonds and also Astria, which also issued, uh, which is a securitized instrument on underlying of uh, private equity uh, instruments. So they use a bit of that technology or structuring, but this is uh, backed by Thermasic. And so I think people have more confidence in that. So if you look for on CDP, I think there are probably only about eight retail bonds right now. So SIA also has, has a retail bond. I think Fraser's has a, has a retail bond, but not many. Um, the one retail bond that uh, in recent times has not uh, sent this retail bond reputation down is, of course, high flux, right? <laughs> yeah. so, yes. so the problem with bonds for re retail investors is sometimes they are sold as bonds equal safe. Right, and that yeah, yeah that's not, what people say. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so it's equal safe, yes. Yeah, but it's not necessarily so, as you can say, just because something carries the word bonds, uh, and so in the case of high flux, it was actually a perpetual bond. So a perpetual bond is different from a say a senior unsecured bond, right? So mm. and it's different than from a subordinated bond, and this is to do with the capital structure of a company. So to understand bonds again, you remember it is actually a borrowing. Now as a company, when you borrow, or even as a country when you borrow, you have an obligation to pay the interest. Mm. And as a company, before you pay your shareholders, you have to pay your interest and, and your borrowings. Yes. Right? It's the same as us, right? We have yes. to, you know, when we borrow from bank, we have to pay yeah. you you know, pay your, debt, your debtors yeah. first. That's yes. right. So if anything happens, we sell off our assets, we pay the debtors first. And so then bonds in itself, you can have a hierarchy of bonds. The, you can have secured bonds, right? And that means that 
is uh, secured on something. So let's say uh, we have the, the mortgage bonds were secured on a pool of mortgages. So the company can collateralize basically their borrowing. Uh, most common is actually a senior unsecured bond. So it depends on the cash flows of the company to pay you. And senior bonds is where you usually take the bond rating uh, of, the, of the company rating from. So there are senior bonds, then there are subordinated bonds, and then there are things called perpetual bonds. Now, bonds are meant to have a term, right? but when they're perpetual, then it becomes a little bit more like perpetual capital, which is actually more quasi-equity. So in a perpetual bonds, you are lower down on the capital structure. What, you get a high coupon, so the high flux has 6% coupon. Mm. Right? But what it means is that something happens to high flux, your priority of payment is way down. So it depends okay. on how much net worth there is in the or net equity there is in the company. Uh, how perpetual bonds work usually is that there's a call date, you know, such that you won't always be holding on to a bond at some point, they will call it back and, and, and this is how it works. So I think many retail investors did not understand what a perpetual bond was. A perpetual bond actually lowered down on the capital structure. Mm. And I guess they also felt that, you know, high flux is like a Singapore darling. Oh, la, la, you know, okay, yeah. la, like everybody needs <laughs> yeah. to drink water, right? That's, you know, right. Like <laughs> That's right. So it's very sad because when bonds are um, sort of misused, right? In the sense, mm. people, and, and big, I'm sure they have been sold these things, saying that bonds very safe one, you know? Mm, confirm. But, I yeah. hear this all the time. And then you've got people putting their life savings in the. Yes. It's, it's really yes. sad. So generally speaking, it's very hard for uh, retail investors to access a basket of bonds. Mm. And at Money Hour, we feel that bonds, uh, like equities, we should be globally diversified. And we want bonds to be uh, really performing their function of being the safer asset. Right? Mm. So how, how, do, how do bonds actually feature in this whole return and yes. risk spectrum? Yes. Maybe we can talk a bit about that. Now, right? share with yeah. us, yes. yes. <laughs> Yeah. I want to know, yes. Yeah. So, bonds are uh, return more than cash, but are more volatile than cash. So, a little bit riskier than cash. Mm. But they return lower than equities and are less volatile than equities. So, okay. this is roughly mm, where they mm, are. Mm, mm. So, because otherwise, if it's just for safety, right, then why don't you use cash? Because mm. cash don't return you anything. Right, yeah, yeah, nowadays, yeah. <laughs> especially nowadays, small cash. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. Every bank is cutting their, you know, uh, fixed D rates and everything. Right? That's right. So. And why is that? Let's say compared equities, why is that so? Remember, I said it's higher up in the capital structure, mm. so it means in return for that safety of being paid first before the shareholders, you don't get any upside. So the best you can get in a bond is your principal back and whatever coupon uh, or yield on the mm. on the bond. Mm. Right? Uh, in as, as a bondholder directly. I'm not talking about the trading of bonds yet and all that. Yes. Yeah. So return is lower than equities, higher than cash. Volatility is lower, actually much lower uh, than equities, but higher than cash. So I was just looking at some data. So let's say our uh, the US dollar version of our dimensional global core equity fund, which we have in our portfolios, over a 10-year period, returned about 8.9% uh, per annum wow. total return. That's pretty yeah. high. But the standard deviation, uh. which is volatility, yes. is 14.7%. Uh, Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Oh, okay. okay. So okay. how do you understand this is that... Uh, Within one standard deviation, it means that 68% of the time, uh, you will be, say, that average return minus 14.7% or plus 14.7%. So, so you have that variability, right? So that's usually a measure of risk, volatility. So 8.9 return versus 14.7 standard deviation. Now, if you look at, say, the uh, Bloomberg Barclays Global Aggregate Bond Index, that's US dollar hedged, it returns around slightly less than half over 10 years, 4.2%. But the volatility is only 2.6%. Oh, yeah. So, okay, so okay. That's, the, that's the difference because it's so much less volatile. Mm. And I don't think I need to talk about cash. I probably share of 1% and volatility, <laughs> like 0.5%. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Then uh, the thing is, but why doesn't everyone just invest in equities? Mm. Right? It's because of this volatility. Yes. Then you see should I then maximise risk-adjusted return? So risk-adjusted return, uh, you will hear a lot of fund managers say that you know, return versus really sharp ratios and all mm. that. Right? This boils down to whether 4% is good enough for you. Mm. Right? Over the long term, does it, does it beat inflation? Does it meet your needs? After inflation, does it meet your, uh, you know, the, your life needs that I was talking about? Is it sufficient returns for you? And for most people... It probably would not be because we want to increase. We have so many needs, right? To, we need to save for. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So this is the nuance there. That yes, equities will give a higher return, but we don't all go for equities. Mm. And just now we talked about how institutions use bonds, right? And or we referred to that about institutions buying a lot of bonds. And this is one of the things about institutional investors, say like you know the foundation that that came from, that you institutional investors are. Very seldom have I seen a mandate that is 100% equities. <laughs> right. Because it is always about the risk appetite. Mm. And because bonds have this lower volatility, they have that function of dampening volatility of the whole portfolio return. But better than cash. Because mm. cash will give zero, but this one will give a little bit. And there's also some negative correlation, not always, some negative correlation, uh, between bonds and equities because when times are stressed uh, investors tend to run to safety or they, they just want to you know get a little bit of return but not zero so they will then bid up all the prices of the bonds mm. so that correlation but not not always perfect helps in the the whole portfolio uh, volatility mm. essentially when the stock market is shaking then the bond market will come and come in and That's help right. you stabilize your portfolio yeah. and this can uh, do with the business cycle and all that mm. so all institutional investors have a, a risk appetite and usually it's stated down in a policy, what you call an IPS or a, a investment policy statement. And it's not that different from how we advise our, our retail clients. It's around three things. It's your need, ability and willingness to take risk. Mm. Your need to take risk is actually what return you require. So if you are like a foundation, you might have a spending rule, you might have 
say I, I'm looking for how much return from this because I need to spend it on, on this and that. Uh, so like endowments, for, for example, they have this uh, required return. So for us, it is like how much return do you need in order to retire, right? So that's the need to take risk. If the need is very low, then... Then the other is your ability. So this ability for us as individuals is the time horizon. Because over time, we know that the stock market will go up, but then you can ride out the volatility. But if you only have two years left, and say, say, say it was 2006, Just right? Just say that year uh, is your then, year. Correct. And then you needed to take out some, like some, some people in the US, they needed to convert their pension into annuity. In 2008, well, then it was down by 50%. So two years is means you have very, very low ability to take risk. For institutions, is to do with, you know, are these surplus funds, are these uh, this working capital that I need, or is it really, uh, what, what can I do with this, this uh, amount of money? Do I, do I need it at all? And also the cash flow management. And the last is your willingness to take risk, your tolerance. Mm. Right? So if you tend to be, say, a... Uh, government-linked body or something, <laughs> like when, <laughs> you might not want to, you know, expose yourself to a lot of questions if, if, uh, if the... Yeah, like this year do very well, next year why so bad? Yeah. Like, yeah, do right, very well, so. okay, it's always the... <laughs> 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 yeah. So if you see, let's say our GIC, mm. right, we have, there's a reference portfolio, it's not really a bench, but the reference portfolio uh, for the long-term investment, 65% equities and 35% bonds. So this is an asset allocation. So what happens then is all your risk appetite translates then into a, an asset allocation. And the bonds are a staple in this asset allocation. Mm. Mm. Okay, so then, like just now you point out, right, fundamentally the standard deviation is the risk factor. You know, in this in this whole thing, and when when people go into bonds, essentially, you want to get something that's lower SD, like lower standard mm. deviation, and then, you know, exchange the upside for for the stability, yeah. right? For, yeah. Uh, yeah, for like a better way to put it, that is what it is. Yeah. Then, from a bond perspective, right? Mm. Like, um, from what I understand, is like there is the the whole like grading process, mm. like like you rate you rate the bonds, mm. right? So, how do they rate the bonds, ah, and, okay. and at what point do they go from like you know uh, investment grade to like junk grade? Okay, so. There are three rating agencies. Uh, Only three, yeah. Uh, there are more, but okay, the, the sort the of reliable, respected ones. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, big tree, big, big tree, big tree. Is. Yes, uh, S and P or Standard and Poor's, Moody's, and uh, Fitch ratings. Right. So there are a few others, and then China has one and all that. But the two among the three that are bigger is S and P and Moody's. So they have a scale that goes from triple A down to D. What do these grades reflect? They reflect ultimately your ability to meet your obligations. Mm. Uh, yeah, and, mm. and the ability to meet obligations, actually, I, I'm, I'm just wondering whether I should say ability because there's actually two main components. It's your ability to pay and your willingness to pay. Yes, yeah. fair. Because mm. some companies are very tough. They can pay, but they don't want to pay. Mm. And, and this actually happens, or some countries even. You know, there are some countries that are serial defaulters, you know, like Argentina. Argentina. <laughs> but people still can buy, right? Yeah, yeah. And all that. So this is roughly what happens. And how do rating agencies rate these bonds? They have a sort of set of metrics that has to do with leverage, so how much debt you have, uh, but a lot of cash flow things, how much interest coverage you have, how many years can you continue paying, how many maturities you have. 
and then whether you can refinance them. If you have some extraordinary support, because you are a government-linked company and all that, then you might get an uplift. Right? <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, yeah, correct. Extraordinary. <laughs> you special kid. You are a special kid. Nah. <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. So, uh, I remember last time we had Neptune Orient Lines. So, mm. NOL, uh, actually on the metrics, not, not looking so good. And also profitability and all that. But because they were uh, think to market portfolio companies, so I think the, the investors also gave them that. Mm, uplift mm. and I think I believe the ratings also benefited in Singapore you may not find that these ratings are common right so what it means the reason is because when you go out to issue bonds you want to use the rating to give a handle to your investors so that the investors will price you in accordance with this rating service so there is inherent there a little bit of conflict of interest, right? And this is what happened during the 08 crisis as well. So I want to issue a bond and I pay you to make the rating on me. Mm, so right? you give me a better rating. Yeah, and I, I mean, okay, yeah. So, so obviously, <laughs> so there's actually lawsuits filed over yes, these things yes. and all that, right? The, there's that uh, conflict of interest inherent there uh, in the industry rating. But generally speaking, they look at certain uh, credit metrics. Mm. I think besides the problem of the conflict of interest, the issue which, which, which actually put the credibility of the rating agencies into doubt when the credit crisis hit, um, or, or the financial crisis hit, is really that the rating agencies get it wrong, mm. or they got it wrong, especially during the crisis. I still remember in 07, uh, and I kept that, that rating <laughs> report for a while, there was a bunch of bond insurers in the US and their names like MBIA, MBAC, Fiji. And what they did was they guaranteed bonds. And they, they were given a triple A rating as late as October 2007. But they couldn't fulfill and they dropped to triple C's and all that like very, very quickly. So this is really when like what, what's happening there, right? So there's a bit of um, group think and all that. But you also think about how would the rating agency know when your interest coverage is down or that. It's after the fact, right? <laughs> yeah. After you Shit report news. Yeah. Usually it reports some news and, and, and I guess in the US there's more uh, transparency, so it's more common reporting. Yes. Right? So you say, oh the, the results, then usually after the results the credit analyst will do something. I mean all of us will also be watching and, and looking and then there'll be a downgrade or maybe an outlook will be issued. But then it's sort of slow, right? So rating agencies are, are therefore be naturally behind the curve because it's not fair to their client for them to you know, act for no reason, right? A, yeah. Of course, sometimes it's many macro factors affecting that particular outlook. So for mm. during COVID, I guess, uh, many companies will have had some um, issues with their ratings. So there is actually an alternative, right, which is to use market prices. So for uh, Money Hour, this speaks to us because generally speaking, we believe in the power of the markets, the efficiency of the markets. And bond markets are large and for uh, starting actually with, with treasuries and they are, um, they price, right? So they price the collective and aggregate expectations and all the information available of, of all the participants in the market. So it is possible to look at where a bond is trading and to then say what does that imply for its credit worthiness. Mm. Yeah. So for a government bond, it trades at a certain yield. 
So at a certain maturity, it might trade, say, uh, let's say US 10-year bond yield is about just over 1%, 1.1%. Now, if you are rated lower than the US government, as most corporates would be, if not all, uh, and then you have a credit spread. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you need to pay more, la, right? Uh, because uh, uh. you are not as It would be pretty worthy. amazing if you are graded higher than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, generally speaking, yes. generally speaking, if you, uh, you, you don't tend to be rated higher than your government, but it has happened before uh, where the, let's say, was it Petrobras or something where you are rated higher than your uh, government because uh, you have more cash flow coming from uh, the outside your country than your government has. <laughs> so it does happen. Yeah. But, but generally speaking, yeah, so that's, this is what you call a credit spread. So the wider the credit spread means that the more compensation or the higher your yield is after minusing off the government yield. So you can look at then when the bonds are trading. You know, so remember I told you the prices and it's also implied yield. And then you can work back that credit spread to see, oh, is this bond actually trading at a triple B or is it actually trading at a double A? So in, if, you are, if you then think that actually the market, you should trust market prices more, well, then you should take your actions actually based on that. Yeah. And during the crisis uh, in 2008, uh, at one point we saw uh, Lehman was still being rated uh, A or A+. Plus, and it was trading at a kind of low triple B. Yeah. Then it jumped to default. Yeah. So, so, so that's, and there's a way of like looking at, oh, you know, there's some, is there something that someone knows or someone's expecting in the markets? Mm. Our dimensional funds also work like that. So they don't just wait for the rating agencies. They look at uh, where, what is the implied creditworthiness that the markets are telling them. Mm. Right? And then they take the actions accordingly. Ah, mm. So you're using price discovery to then decide how how secured these bonds are yeah. essentially. Basically price to, right. to, because to the tell market you will tell you, right? That's right. Like, oh this yeah. this is getting bitted up, then you you know yeah. something's going on. That's here. right. Okay. So then one last question. Okay. So all that being said, now I think I, I get a better understanding of bonds. I know there's so much more to talk. I think we, we can see, you know, come back again, right? We'll, we'll talk again. But then where does bonds sit in one's overall portfolio then? Generally speaking, we will not depend on bonds to make you money, mm. right? And where it makes you money is actually in equities, yeah. So there's a very fundamental uh, economic system reason for this. Remember I said bonds, no upside, right? Uh, but equities is where all when the enterprise of the world and you grow your products and you have production and all this is where uh, you are participating in the economic activity of the world uh, beyond just supplying bond capital so uh, we would say make your money in equities yes but because not all of us can take that roller coaster right yes yeah then if you press the button when you're on the roller coaster you fall off you die right uh. figuratively, <laughs> figuratively speaking thankfully yeah. roller coasters don't have because we can say all in one but um it's not easy to stay invested yes. your advisor should help you that's why we are a bionic advisor your advisor who is not a robot would can advise you please remember stay invested but you may not have the risk tolerance in which case it's better for you to say not have a hundred percent equities portfolio even if you are very young because if you are going to press that button i'd rather you be in a say 60 percent equities with 40 percent bonds you still get good return that's sufficient but 
in a way with the bonds helping you to stay invested by the effect of the portfolio. There's a second uh, use of, of bonds in a portfolio which is actually for income. That means to actually clip the coupons and to get some kind of uh, income distribution, right? So even institutions do that, you know, so including our like GSEs and all that, they give the government some is realised income and some is uh, now of course this is really more when you need to withdraw and the corollary to it would be like dividends stocks right but of course the, the risk is lower uh, for, for bonds and this is this is one use of bonds uh, unfortunately because of the interest environment now uh, this coupon don't tend to be very high la. And also, it will it will it has been coming down. So actually, even for distribution, there are techniques that we can uh, use. Touch that we use. Uh, if you need a certain income amount, you can actually also withdraw from your say equities portfolio in a percentage. So some of it can be funded by bonds, and some of it a withdrawal from your other investments. Yeah. So, but I think that's probably a topic for another day about how to withdraw. Awesome. Thank you. I think we, we all learn a lot of good stuff, right? So thank you for your time. I think we will come back again. <laughs> thank you, Reggie. <laughs> Let's we'll spend more time with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah. Hey, I hope you learned something useful today and truly appreciate that you took time off to better your life with the financial coconut. Knowledge is that much more powerful and interesting when shared, debated and discussed. Join our community telegram group, follow us on our social, sign up for our weekly newsletter. Everything is in the description below. And if you love us and help us grow, definitely share the podcast with your friends and on your socials. Also, if you have some interesting thoughts to share or know someone that you want to hear more from, reach out to us through hello at thepotentialcoconut.com. With that, have a great day ahead. Stay tuned next week and always remember, personal finance can be chill, clear and sustainable for all. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, wow. Um, hope you learned something interesting from her. She's talked about a lot, a lot of stuff, right? From like bond yields to how bonds work. You know, when does a bond go from investment to junk? You know, so all these different elements I think are very important, right? So I hope you be able to get a better understanding, right? Rather than just go into this idea of like, oh, bonds, bonds important because you must probably diversify, right? So that'd be great. And next week, we're going to touch on this very hot topic, right? The whole idea of bit. Bitcoin, right? So we have a guest coming on next week to talk about Bitcoin. His name is Arthur, right, from Defiance Capital. And he actually believes that Bitcoin will go to zero. But what is the future of crypto then, right? Now, he's super big on the whole like DeFi, you know, decentralized finance. And I think he has some very good thoughts and he gave us like a broad understanding a broad lesson of like what is Bitcoin, what is the crypto market, what are different kind of coins out there and where does he see the future of the crypto industry, right? So next week, stay tuned. A very, very hot topic of Bitcoin and blockchain. See ya.